0: Good afternoon, it is a great joy and and blessing to be here together. If your Bibles aren't already open to Philippians chapter 2, I ask that you'll open them there with me now. We'll be looking at this passage again in just a moment. We have a lot of good workers here at at the congregation at Eastside. Um, I've often prayed that God will send more laborers into the harvest I think over the, the last four years that, that we've lived here, we've, we've seen him answer that prayer time and time again. I think over, over half the congregation uh, is, is new workers, uh, with, with the group here at least. And we pray that God will continue to equip us in his work, that, that we'll continue to grow in our ability to serve, to build up his body, to spread his kingdom, and to shine his light. But as we think about being workers servants in his kingdom, uh, there's a danger that I've seen in my service and in my heart, and perhaps it's a challenge that you can relate to, and that, that is that there is a, a big difference between having servants' hands and having a servant's heart. And as we seek to equip the body for the work of ministry, we can help people learn to teach a class, learn to lead a prayer, show hospitality, reach out to the struggling, maybe help with our building needs or our teaching program. But if we haven't first equipped ourselves with servants' hearts, then we've missed the point entirely. Then we're trying to build a house with no foundation. Whatever work we may accomplish will ultimately fail in achieving its true purpose. It has to start with equipping our hearts. So today I want us to spend some time considering what makes up a true servant's heart. I want us to work to equip ourselves with the attitudes and perspectives that will help us genuinely reflect the heart of our ultimate example, the great servant, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's start here in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to just read the passage that Christopher read for us once again, starting in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You notice there in verse five, we're told to have the mind, uh, the attitude, which is ours in Christ or the mind that was in Christ. Well, how is that attitude, the mind of Christ, described to us? You see, there in verse three, we're to do nothing with selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, count others more significant. Or the King James New King James says better. New American Standard says more important than yourselves. When I was younger, I, I read this passage in the New King James, and it says count others better than yourselves. I, and I struggled with that a little bit. I thought, well, well but, but what if they're not better than me? You know, well, what, what if they aren't doing as much in God's service? What if their lives are not as put together as mine? What if their life is broken and messed up and not reflecting God's glory the way that mine is? What if they don't have as much to offer in the service of the Lord? Well, then how, how do I count them better than myself you know if Jesus the pure and sinless son of God is set forth to us as an example of regarding others better than himself then who are we not to do that I I think maybe there's a misunderstanding of what humility is here Because no one is more important, no one is better, no one is more worthy, no one is more significant than Jesus Christ himself. And yet we're told he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. True humility is not false modesty. It's not disingenuous degrading of ourselves. And while us, who are broken us who have sinned and rebelled against the Lord uh, should have a humility that includes a recognition of our sin and of our unworthiness. If Jesus himself can be set forth as the example of true humility, then it's something more than that. I think what we see here is that humility is not primarily a low view of self. Humility is a conscious decision to lower ourselves, to empty ourselves, to take on the position and role of a servant, to take a position of sacrifice. You know, when we think about humility, uh, we, we might think, you know, I, I can imagine somebody saying, um, you know, well, so-and-so, he's real humble, but he has a lot to be humble about. <laughs> Maybe some have, have said that of me. Um, but I think that's a misunderstanding of what humility is. In fact, some of the most humble people may have a lot to offer, may have a lot of talent and ability, may be doing a whole lot, accomplishing a whole lot in the Lord's service. Humility isn't just about a low view of self. It doesn't just come from a recognition of our brokenness and failure, although that is included for us. It comes from a proper understanding of our role and position that we've been given in life. An understanding of who God made us to be and where our gifts and abilities come from. Jesus could be the example of humility because he understood the role that he was given. Now he had every qualification, every worthiness of something much, much higher and something much, much greater but he was humble in the sense that he acknowledged and accepted the role of lowliness, the role of service that God designed for him. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Starting in verse three, he's talked about giving our lives as a living sacrifice, our bodies as a living sacrifice and, and, chapter 12, verse 1, and then he goes on to talk about this in the context of our relationships with one another and the context of us being a body. He says in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Goes on to talk about how there are many different members in the body with different functions, different roles. Then he says in verse 6 having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them in prophecy and service and teaching. How is it that we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think? Well, he says, with sober judgment, recognizing the measure of faith God has assigned to us. To us, What does that mean? That God has assigned to each of us a measure of faith. Normally we would think of God assigning his grace to us, right? Giving us a measure or a portion of his grace that we can use in his service. That's kind of what verse 6 talks about. The gifts given to us according to his grace. What does it mean when it says he has assigned to us or allotted to us a measure of faith? Well, faith is kind of the other side of the coin, Right? Uh, Grace is what God has given to us. Faith is our reliance and trust upon the gifts of God. And when he says that we have been assigned or allotted a measure of faith, it's recognizing there that uh, while, yes, faith is something that that we choose to do, that we choose to trust in the Lord, the objects of our faith are things that have been given to us, right? Right? They're things that we rely upon, that we trust in, that God has granted to us. We, we ultimately can't uh, have faith in what God has given if he hasn't first given it to us. Does that make sense? Um, and so here it's our trust and reliance upon his grace. God has granted us a role and position and abilities for which we must rely upon him. And so when we have a more accurate perspective of who we are, and who we are meant to be in God's servants, we will see that we are just one small piece of a great masterpiece that God is working. That we are just one small member of a body of which he is head. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. Peter writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, or God's manifold grace. For us, taking the position of a servant isn't some great and noble sacrifice that we make. It is a humble recognition of who we were made to be, of the role that God has assigned to us, um, the task that God has entrusted to us. God didn't create us to be superstars, He didn't create us to be the heroes of the story. He created us to be servants. Uh, lowly supporting actors and actresses, mere extras in a story of which he is the hero. And though Jesus was worthy of a much greater position, he didn't consider equality with God, his position as deity, as something to be grasped, something to be held onto, but he let go, in a sense, of his equality with God by humbling himself, accepting the position of a man. The position of a servant. If Jesus was willing to take that position, how much more should we willingly acknowledge the position that we were created to fulfill? That we, uh, by the the measure of faith, the measure of grace that God has given us, are designed to fulfill. Um, When we think about being servants, all that we're doing is acknowledging who we are who we were created to be, who God made us to be, stewards of his manifold grace, servants in his kingdom. Uh, And so humility is not just thinking lowly of self, but it's recognizing that any gift that I have to offer first came from God's hands. I'm just a tool. I'm just a conduit. I'm just a vessel for God's glory. A servant is what he has designed me to be. And closely related to that is a heart of selflessness. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, we saw in humility count others more significant or better than yourselves. He goes on to say in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also for the interests of others. As we have this humility of recognizing who we are, we recognize that things aren't about us. Uh, That I rather need to be more in tune to others' needs, to others' needs. Uh, desires than my own. Humbly understanding the role we've been created to fill as servants means understanding the purpose and goal of our work. That life is not about me. I wasn't created so that I could be fulfilled. So that I could enjoy life. So that my needs could be met. My desires fulfilled. God created me to serve. And so I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. I'm here for others. I'm here for God's service. I think that's how we will begin to measure our success. When we see what it is we were created to be. Turn back to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 25. Jesus talking to his disciples here who constantly were debating about who was greatest in his kingdom. Notice what he says to them starting in verse 25. It says, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What is the Christian's measure of greatness? How do we measure how successful we are as disciples? You know, it's not by how many people respect us and are under our authority or influence. It's not by the greatness of our accomplishments or how impressive they look to others. It's not how much of a servant uh, others see us to be. It's how much of a servant's heart we have. How much of a servant we have truly become. How much we're willing to lower ourselves, to sacrifice for the benefit of others, to serve regardless of recognition, appreciation, or respect. You know, if Jesus, the Son of God, came not to be served but to serve, who are we to think that we're here to be served? How much more Should we recognize that we are here to be servants. And that that is the measure of success. That's the measure of greatness in the kingdom. That's what following in the footsteps of Jesus looks like. Turn over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we see Jesus very intentionally giving an example of what this means to be a servant to his disciples. Here in John 13, starting in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Do you see how much John sets the scene before he tells us what Jesus did here in washing the disciples' feet? He's making it very clear how intentional this example of humility and service is. We learn in verse 1 that Jesus knew what was getting ready to happen. He knew what he was getting ready to suffer, that his hour had come, that he was getting ready to die. You know, if if that was you or I, how, how do you think we might react in that situation? Sitting there with all these dirty, dusty feet, nobody getting up to take care of it. You know, if if I was in the position of Jesus, I could see myself at least thinking, you know, listen, I have a whole lot on my mind right now. My plate's pretty full. Do you you think one of you guys could just get up and take care of this? Can somebody else just take the position of a servant and come wash our feet? In verse two, it makes it clear that Satan had already entered into Judas' heart, that Jesus knew what was going on with his disciples. Jesus knew what was getting ready to happen, that he was getting ready to be betrayed, that they were all going to forsake him. And yet, he got up and washed their feet, washed even Judas's feet. Again, if this were me, I could see myself thinking, you know, after all that I've done for you, And all that I'm prepared to do for you. If you're really going to turn around and forsake me and stab me in the back, do you think you could just do this one thing? (laughs) Just show me a glimmer of hope by showing some humility and thoughtfulness and getting up and taking care of this. Verse 3 makes it clear that Jesus knew who he was. That he had come from God and was going to God. Here, the son of God, deity in the flesh. We might say, listen, I, I might be just a little overqualified to serve in this feet washing position. You know, son of God, deity, the Messiah. Don't you think it might make a little bit more sense for one of you to take care of this? You know, from an earthly standpoint... Might that not be our attitude? You know, I got a lot going on here. It would make a lot more sense for you to do it. And considering what you're about to do to me, you you think you could just do a little something right for once? But is that Jesus' attitude? Jesus shows no frustration, no hesitation. Jesus gets up takes off his outer garment, puts on the towel, takes the position of a servant. Very intentional. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 12. It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Brethren, if our Lord and Savior, deity in the flesh, on the night that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be crucified, had such a servant's heart to get up and take the lowliest position to wash his disciples' feet, then who am I to be frustrated or upset about others not stepping up and doing something? Who am I not to willingly, without hesitation, without grumbling, without frustration, get up and be a servant? Jesus was willing to take on that position. That's the position that I was created to fulfill. That's my job. That's who God wants me to be. Do we have the heart of Jesus? It doesn't matter what else we have on our plate or whether or not our needs are being met. It doesn't matter what others have done or haven't done for us. It doesn't matter how overqualified we feel that we are or whether or not we think our abilities could be best used in some greater, more significant way. If there's some need that we see among our brethren or among our neighbors, we need to be the kind of people who are jumping up ready to take care of it. That's the heart of Jesus. That should certainly be the heart of his servants. And when that's how we view greatness in the kingdom, greatness in serving, it's going to transform the way we see spiritual growth. Turn back a little bit earlier in the Gospel of John to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, the context here, verse 26, some people have come to John the Baptist and said, you know that guy that you kind of gave his start, you said he's the Lamb of God. Well, everybody's leaving you, and they're going to him now. What what are you going to do about that? Notice John's response. Down down in verse 29, he says, uh, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. How did John view his role? John says, it's not about me. I'm not here to bigger and better my disciple-making business. I'm not here to, to gather a following. This whole thing is not about me. It's about the groom. The bride, the people, the church, is his. And I rejoice to see the bride being joined with its groom. Is that how we view our role? If so, then what John goes on to say is going to be something we need to internalize. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, I think sometimes when I thought about spiritual growth, I have to think about, you know, how much knowledge I've gained. How much more equipped I am for teaching, for serving. How, how far I've advanced in spiritual maturity and in gaining the respect and influence among other Christians. And, and yes, spiritual growth includes some of those things. Do you know what the greatest measure of spiritual growth is? (laughs) How much have I decreased? And how much has Jesus increased in my life? My greatest success in the Lord's work is when people respond to me by thinking less of Grady and thinking more of Jesus. That's what being a disciple, being a servant is about. It's not about us. And if we're going to grow in service, that's going to mean less and less and less of us. That means we're going to get less frustrated. We're going to get less upset. We're going to get uh, less annoyed at other people not taking care of this or taking care of that. We're going to see opportunities to be like Jesus. You know, when there's some need that needs to be taken care of, I'm going to say this is my opportunity to be like Jesus. When somebody's not treating me right, this is my chance to be like Jesus. It's not a time to be self-focused, to be fleshly focused. It's time to step up, put on my towel, and get to work for the Lord. But we can't empty our heart of self without filling it with something else. And that something else ultimately needs to be the love of God. The ever-flowing, abundant, steadfast love that he has for mankind. His creation, people made in his image. Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to start in verse thirty here he's been talking about putting off the old man putting on the new man verse 24 uh, created after the likeness of god in verse 30 he says and do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's the standard? What's the measure? The character of God. God has given given us his spirit that we might be transformed into his likeness, that we might bear the fruit of his character. We need to get rid of a bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice because those things are contrary to God's spirit. They grieve the spirit. They do not reflect the heart of God. We need to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving and loving because that is the fruit of God's spirit. It reflects his character. It's consistent with his heart. Brethren, when we're bitter about our service, when we're internally grumbling about what we are expected to do, when we're frustrated with others about serving, uh, not serving in the way that that we need, uh, when we're critical and judgmental, we are not reflecting the love of God and we're not acting like his children. You know, if anyone ever had a right to be bitter about how they were being treated, neglected or overlooked, Don't you think it would be God Himself? How many people that have walked the face of the earth have neglected God? How many people have failed to serve Him properly? But how did God react to being snubbed and rejected throughout all of human history? He continued to pour forth His mercy. His steadfast love. Ultimately through the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. You know, sometimes people over time grow more and more bitter, right? The more that they experience uh, negative things, the more that they experience betrayal, that they experience other people not caring for them, uh, the more bitter they become. Imagine for all of human history being mistreated, being neglected, being snubbed. And yet God has not grown more bitter and bitter. God has showed more and more love and more and more mercy. Brethren, that's our standard. That's the heart that we're intended to reflect. That's the spirit that we're intended to be filled with. I want us to read Matthew 5, Um, a section of the Sermon on the Mount here. And I want us, not not to make a whole lot of of comment uh, about this passage, I want us to just really look at this passage as a mirror, as much as possible. Think, how does this describe me? Does this describe me? Jesus here in Matthew 5 is, is contrasting human standards with God's standard. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. That's the heart that we're intended to reflect. Are we willing to be hurt and insulted in order to serve others? Are we willing to be inconvenienced and taken advantage of in order to serve others? Are we willing to sacrifice in ways that would seem unreasonable in order to serve others? Are we willing to be underappreciated, to be stubbed and rejected, and still serve others? If not, if that's not what our service looks like, then maybe we're measuring by the wrong standard. Maybe we've confused what our purpose and what our role here in this world is. It's not about us. It's not about serving insofar as I get the kind of appreciation that I deserve. It's not about serving insofar as others are serving me. It's about serving in the way that God desires for us to serve. Serving in a way that reflects his spirit and his character living within us. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 tells us we love because he first loved us. The only way that we can even understand this kind of love is by seeing it in the Father. It's not something that comes natural. It's not something that comes from the flesh. It's something that comes from the Spirit. John 4 verse 8 and 9 says, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. How do we love as his servants? Well, if we're struggling to love others in the way described here in Matthew 5, maybe we need to take some time to meditate on the love that God has shown for us. The love that Jesus showed and coming down to earth living a life of sacrifice, experiencing the suffering and grief and pain of the flesh, and ultimately humbling himself to become obedient to death upon a cross. That's our example. That's our standard. That's the heart that we need to reflect. And if we claim to be born of God, if we claim to know God, then we need to reflect His love and the way that we live and the way that we serve from day to day. So what about you? What about me? Are we living as servants? Does it show in our actions? Maybe more importantly, does it show in our attitude? Do we have humble hearts? Selfless hearts? Hearts filled with God's love? It it may be that we're going through all the right motions. It may be that we are very diligent, uh, that we're doing lots of things for other people, that we're doing lots of things in the Lord's service. But if our heart is not where it needs to be, if we aren't eager to do those things because we understand who we are, who we were made to be, and we are reflecting genuinely the love of God within us, then whatever we think we're accomplishing It's not truly what God would have us accomplish. Let's equip ourselves first and foremost with servants' hearts, with the heart of Jesus. If you recognize that that's not the attitude that you have, that that's not the way you've been thinking, that's not the way you've been living, then won't you allow God to transform you, to remold you in the renewing of your mind, the renewing of your heart? If you've never committed your life to the Lord, by his grace, you can bury the old man, the flesh, The selfish life in the waters of baptism, you can be raised to walk a new life, no longer living for self, but for him who died and rose again for you. And if you've made that commitment, but you've been struggling with it, maybe you've been outright not living it. If you need to repent, if you need to confess your sins before these brethren, if you need to ask for prayers, we're here to help one another to be more like Christ. If there's any way that we can help you in that, won't you please let us know at this time as we stand and sing together.